Well, good morning, everyone. And we are going to continue in our study of 1 Corinthians, and uh, as we do, we're going to enter into a new subject this morning, a uh, subject of spiritual gifts, which is still a pretty hot topic in our church culture today, isn't it? We uh, ask questions like, what are the spiritual gifts? And more specifically, what is my spiritual gift? And if I don't like the one I have, can I choose a different one, right? We want to know things like, do they change over time, or are there some that are obsolete, like speaking in tongues or miraculous healings? These are all good questions, but we need to be careful, and this is why. I believe the Corinthian church likely had a similar list of questions, but those questions were motivated by this ongoing issue of selfish gain. They looked at the spiritual gifts as distinguishing characteristics with some of the gifts being more preferable than others and so in the end your value as a person was determined by the perceived importance of your spiritual gift and it created all kinds of chaos within the Corinthian churches they maneuvered around this issue of spiritual gifts ultimately turning the focus on themselves creating division and disunity what, what a sad reality that what God intended to, to fit people together became a subject of division. Even more sad is that it continues to this day. There are biblical theologies and church denominations that are based almost entirely on this topic. We often make the same mistake that the Corinthians have done, where we wrongly perceive that the spiritual gifts are all about me. We use them for personal purposes. We use them to, to control how I want to experience God's work in my life. We, we wield them to accomplish certain goals in my life. We manipulate them to, to opt out of certain things that I'd rather not do. Why? Because <laughs> that's not my spiritual gift. And yet, as Paul will explain, that's not what God intended. The spiritual gifts are not ours to choose from. They're God's to distribute. They don't set us apart from one another. They fit us together. And they're never intended for just individual, personal use. They're always intended for the common good of the body of Christ. Spiritual gifts ultimately flow out of an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. They are the evidence of God's power at work in God's people fulfilling God's purpose in the world that's what this is all about and so as we look at spiritual gifts this morning I want us to consider them to be like an inventory of God's grace <laughs> they are the evidences of his work in and through his people and it should be things that empower us and unite us for things that are well beyond us maybe a lot like what Greg Miller just walked through this morning that's the evidence of God's work and God's people. So let's commit our time to prayer before we look at this together. God, as we come to you this morning, we realize that this topic has been influenced by a lot, by a lot of things in our world today. Uh, some of them are true and, and consistent with your word, your heart for your people, and, and some are not. And we need to have clarity through your spirit, through your word, in order to live our lives in alignment with your intentions. 
We cannot do this on our own. We are totally and utterly dependent upon you. So will you please invade this space. Speak to our hearts. Change our lives in a way that is in conformity to what you've created us to be for your good pleasure. We pray this in your name. Amen. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we will begin in verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you will, just read along with me. I will have uh, verses up here this morning because we're going to look at several of them. I'd love for you to follow along in the scripture, but if you can't keep up with me, they'll be up here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that you, when you were pagans, you were led astray to the dumb idols. However, you were led. Paul begins this section of his letter with now concerning, which is like a signpost that tells us that Paul is now going to enter into a new topic brought to him by members of the Corinthian church. But even though it's a new topic, we need to keep in mind and be prepared for the fact that it will likely fall in line with this ongoing issue of spiritual pride in the church. It's kind of like a tightwad or a penny pincher asking a question about tithing, right? Chances are it will be tainted with some issue of selfish pride. Based on what we know of the Corinthian church, it's very likely that this is true for this topic as well. So Paul takes them back to a place of common ground, a, a place of humility. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, which in my opinion is a nice way of saying, listen closely because you're going the wrong way. And, and then in verse 2 he says, you know that you, when you were pagans you were led astray to dumb idols. What a humbling statement for a very prideful people paul is reminding them don't forget there was a time when you blindly followed the path of sin there was a time that you exchanged the truth of god for a lie as psalm 115 says you listened to those who had mouths but couldn't speak to those who had ears but couldn't hear to those who had eyes, but couldn't see. You thought you were in control. You believed you were making your own choices, but all along, you were being led astray by the spirit of this world. And when we hear that, I want us to hear very clearly, so were we. So were we. In fact, if you want to, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. I'll have it up here if you... I want to look at it there, but Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 explains our condition when it says, chapter 2, verse 1, and you, you and I, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all, all, all of us formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Here's the point. Apart from Christ, we were never, ever in control. We were slaves to sinful desires, all of us. And those desires were idols. 
in, in, in the truth of, of, the, of the Scripture, those desires were idols. It could have been the desire for popularity or beauty. It could have been the desire for, for money or success, the desire for control or, or influence. But idols don't have to be some graven image because ultimately an idol is a selfish desire. Something that you p- pursue apart from Christ. And that selfish desire is ultimately motivated by the influence of a demonic force. It is the spirit of this world that convinces you that you can do it on your own. That there's something better outside the boundary of God's design. Persuade you to be your own person. Just make your own decisions. But make no mistake, you were being led astray. And it was true for every single one of us. In the end, there's really no such thing as freedom of choice. Because ultimately, we're being led by some spiritual force. The only question is, who are you going to choose to follow? Paul reminds the Corinthians that there was a time when they followed the idols, (laughs) that they were being led astray by the spirit of this world. And when we hear that reminder, every single person in this room needs to be reminded as well, so too were we but not for the grace of God. Look at how he continues in verse 3. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. The, The point here is that there is no decision ever made independent of a spiritual influence. Did you hear what I just said? Please get this point. There is no decision ever made independent of a spiritual influence whether that decision is to reject christ or to follow him there is no decision ever made outside of a spiritual influence now this idea of jesus being accursed was not uncommon during the day there was a very clear old testament passage that said cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree So the Jews looked at the crucifixion of Jesus and saw what happened and said, well, he's cursed by God. He's receiving the judgment of God. There's no way that he can be the Messiah because the Messiah wouldn't be cursed on a tree. And so you hear that and you think, well, they've got a point. They're actually kind of right. But look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. This is important. So right after 1st and 2nd Corinthians is the book of Galatians. I want you to look at this verse. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Paul is going to confront this very issue when he says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Listen, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. They were right. Verse 14, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus was cursed, but he was cursed for you and me. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was cursed because he took our judgment upon himself. It's the great exchange where Jesus took our sin upon himself and in return gave us the righteousness of God. Paul's point is that the only reason that you believe that Jesus is cursed is because you don't understand that he was cursed for you. You're following the spirit of this world who wants to lead you away from the very one who came to rescue you. To rescue you from the domain of darkness and transfer you into the kingdom of his beloved son. The Spirit of God wants you to know that Jesus is Lord. Now, as we've talked about before, the Corinthians would have had no problem uh, accepting Jesus in their pantheon of gods. In fact, it was the religious culture at the time to uh, worship many gods. They were all over that city, if you'll recall. And the idea was you didn't want to isolate your worship to any one god at risk of offending all the others. But what Paul is telling the Corinthians, and what was consistent with the testimony of the gospel of Christ, is that to confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess that Jesus is God, and there is none besides him. He is the one and the only. And to worship him is to deny all others. Again, if you go back to the Jewish reaction to Christ, I believe we see one of the the greatest defenses of this truth. Because just ask yourself, why did they crucify Jesus? What was so bad about the life of Christ that they felt it was necessary to give him the penalty of death? It was blasphemy. Claiming to be equal with God. And Jesus was very clear about that. And and when when the, the Jewish people crucified him, it's because they understood what he was saying. They understood clearly what he was claiming. In fact, if you look at John chapter 8, you don't need to turn there, but John chapter 8, verse 56, says, it's encountering, this will be familiar to you, Jesus is speaking and he says to the Pharisees, your father Abraham received, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, Before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. And Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple. They understood clearly what Jesus just said. He just said, I am God. And so in response to such a blasphemous statement, which they clearly understood, they picked up rocks to stone him. There's another example that's even more explicit than that. John Chapter 10, verse 30 says, Jesus speaking, I and the Father are one. The Jews, once again, took up stones to stone him. Jesus answered and said, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? Listen to what the Jews said. They said to him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be 
God. They understood clearly what he was saying. And they killed him because of the claim of equality with God. And even after his death and resurrection, at that time of Pentecost, when when Peter is again speaking to his Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, listen to what he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, both God and Messiah, both creator and redeemer. It means that Jesus is exactly who he says he was. Jesus is God, and there are none besides him. And to trust him and worship him is to deny all others. So in our passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying, That the Spirit of God is the only one who can lead you to an understanding of that truth. Just think of Peter's confession. Remember what Jesus asked him? He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter responded and said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. What did Jesus tell him? He said, blessed are you, Simon Barona, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven, the Father who speaks to the heart of man through his Spirit has revealed to you the truth that Jesus is Lord. You see, we're all dependent on the Spirit of God to lead us to the truth of God and the confession that Jesus is Lord. Otherwise, Jesus is just a man like other men, a prophet like other prophets, a God like other gods. We might respect him, But unless we hear and understand who he is, we will not surrender our lives to him. And as a result, we are continued to be led astray by the spirit of this world. No decision is ever made independent of some spiritual influence. Whether that be a decision to reject Christ and the influence of the spirit that is at work in this world or the decision to trust Christ Because of the Spirit of God at work in your heart. The only question is, who will you choose to follow? Let me explain it to you this way. This is what I'll call uh, Paul's turtle on a fence post. Okay? Think about this. If you're walking down a road one day and you see a fence post, and on top of that fence post is a turtle, what is one thing you know for absolute certainty? He didn't get there on his own. Right? Right? It's just, it's impossible. That turtle cannot climb that fence post and then sit on top. Well, you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were slaves to our selfish desires. How in the world did we become alive in Christ? Well, one third same thing we can know for sure. We did not get there on our own. God moves first. And we respond to that work of the Spirit in our heart, drawing us to Him. Now, as a Christian, I want you to think about how humbling and how uniting that would be. It it, it puts us on common ground, doesn't it? Not a person in this room deserves God's grace. Not a single one of us. 
And there is no sin so small that God won't judge. Nor is there sin so great that God cannot forgive. Everything rises and falls on Jesus. To as many believe that he is Lord, that he is God, incarnate, in the flesh. To those he gives the right to become children of God, part of the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. Our response to God's loving initiative introduces us to salvation and life with him. And, and that's his point in verse 4. Look at that. It says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are a variety of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. The focus on these three verses that we're going to look at is not the variety of gifts. It's the singularity of their source. It's the multitude of gifts that originate in one holy and gracious God. Because the one who saved you is also the one who continues to equip you by the work of his spirit in your life. And it continues to be based on God's unmerited favor. You didn't earn your salvation. You cannot do anything to keep it outside of faith that started it. It's a continual walk of faith. Our faith introduces us to fellowship with the spirit, which is an ongoing relationship with the presence of God in our life. We need to understand that God didn't bring us to a place of salvation and then tell us, okay, I did my part. Doug, you got it from here. No, Doug is just as dependent in this moment as he was the day he first believed. And so are you and I. The child of God is unconditionally loved by the undivided fellowship of the Trinity. Look at the verses again. Now, there is a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There's a variety of ministries, but the same Lord. Varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Here's how I want us to, to think through this. The first thing I want us to understand is that the Spirit of God gives gifts of grace. There's a parallel passage in Romans chapter 12 that kind of speaks to this same topic. And it's pretty clear in that one what this is talking about he says in chapter 12 verse 6 he says and since we have gifts that differ how according to the grace given to us let us exercise them accordingly <laughs> a spiritual gift is a gift of grace now i want you to think about it this way if you work an eight hour job you earn a wage right if you compete in a sporting event you win a prize if you accomplish something impressive or important, you get an award, right? Well, when you think about the gift of grace, what I want you to understand is that it's not a wage that you earn. It's not a prize that you win. It's not an award that you receive. A spiritual gift is a gift of God's grace. But look at how he continues. That gift of grace is intended to lead us into a life of ministry. It says in verse 5, And these varieties of ministries and the same Lord. Even Jesus knew that his ministry was made possible by the work of the Holy Spirit. You look all throughout the New Testament in the Gospels, and it'll say things like, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. Jesus was filled by the Spirit as he went into Galilee. Jesus went into the Jordan area 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. Even Jesus himself admitted that he didn't do anything on his own initiative, but was always following the leading of the Spirit. He says in John chapter 5, verse, John chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Even Jesus knew. Even Jesus admitted that he did nothing on his own initiative. His life in the flesh is an example of what our life in the spirit looks like. We are called to follow the example of Christ, to do nothing on our own initiative, but to align our lives with the very will of God. And the Spirit of God is what gives us the the gifts of God in order to fulfill the, the ministry of God that He's called us to, which in turn collectively accomplishes the mission of God in the world. Look at verse 6. And there are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all purposes. Spiritual gifts are not for individual use. They are to accomplish a divine purpose. God's work and God's people to fulfill God's mission on earth. It's not a sign of some special privilege. It's an evidence of divine grace. The Spirit of God is not some impersonal influence in our life. It is the very presence of God indwelling his people and empowering them for a divine purpose. That should unify us. It should humble us. It should encourage us towards love and good deeds. Now, with that in mind, I want us to consider as we finish up what it looks like, what it means to to walk in the, the fellowship of the Spirit. I think it's safe to say that living by selfish gain or being in a place of influence in this world or following the pursuit of pleasure in our life is not what it looks like to be led by the Spirit of God. Is that fair? God's Spirit is not a gift to help us accomplish personal goals. But many times we think of spiritual gifts like we do Christmas gifts. Something separate and apart from God as if he says, here, I want you to have this. It's it's from me. But instead we wrongly assume when we have that opinion that God is some impersonal force or some holy influence in our life, and that's simply not true. The Spirit is God's presence within us. The living the life of the Spirit is living a life in relationship with God. And here's something that I think is absolutely amazing about that thought when we continue down that remote road. Remember how the, the Bible often talks about the Spirit of God being like a, a, a pledge of our inheritance or, or, or a deposit? If you think about those words, a pledge or a deposit, you obviously come to, what comes to mind is something that is a representative sample, right? A part of something bigger. It's a pledge. It's a, a deposit. Well, I think that's what God wants to communicate to us is that, that pledge of the Spirit is, is that which allows the work of God, things yet future, to become now present. 
a, a deposit of things yet to come in eternity, actually existing right here and now in your life today. In other words, making God's future real in your present. That's a deposit. That's what it means to be a pledge. Taking a, a piece of eternity with God and allowing you to experience the, that relationship right here and now. Now, the reality, as we all know, is that we live in a broken world, right? And so we're completely surrounded by suffering and pain. But the, the great message of the gospel is that God did not leave you to yourself to figure out how to get through that. That he's actually present with you, empowering you, so that in the midst of all that pain and difficulty, you have a peace that passes understanding. Why? Because God's very presence is with you. You have an endurance, a, a strength that is beyond your own capacity. Why? Because God's presence is within you. You have the ability to forgive those who have wronged you. Why? Because the presence of God reminds you that you forgive because you've been forgiven. To be conformed into the image of Christ is to live by being indwelled by the Spirit of God, conformed into that life that is dependent upon Him, whose, whose life is aligned with God's will. So here's what I want you to think about this week. Just ask yourself this question, and then be aware of what's going on around you. And here's the question. Where do you see the evidence of God's future made real in your present? Where do you see it? Maybe it's in nature. I mean, I can go in the mountains and, and look at the beauty of God's creation and say, God's presence is very evident in what he has created. I can see people in the midst of difficult places and yet still have a piece of God's sovereign control that's evidence of God's presence real right here and now. I can see God's presence real here and now when I see God's people seeking one another, loving one another, depending on God to direct their paths as they encourage one another. That's God's present real in our present, or God's future real in our present. But I don't want you to just stop there and, and think about this from an individual perspective. I want you to think about it as well from the perspective of those around you. Where do you see God's present real in the lives of others around you? How do you see the, the future reality of what God promises being made evident in the church of Christ, in, in this body of believers? How is the Spirit of God at work in the people of God accomplishing the mission of God in this world? And, and what do we need to do as that people to be more faithful to fulfilling that mission? How is He fitting us together? to accomplish that purpose. Let's make sure that as we think about the work of the Spirit in our individual lives that we don't misunderstand that it's all about us. And we see what's happening in my life to in some way impact your life. So that collectively, God's presence is made known through God's people when we fulfill His purpose, His divine purpose in the world. And it's a reminder not to get caught up and boy, what a great time of year to be reminded of this. We've got graduations and end of school and everything going on. And boy, it just, everything turns internal, doesn't it? We need to be reminded 
that the Spirit of God is at work in the people of God to look outside of ourselves to accomplish His purpose in the world. What does that look like? Take some time this week and think about it. Pray about it and ask God to lead you there. So let me pray and then I'll let Bruce come up. Father, we are grateful for your word and your encouragement to trust in you. We realize that as we have a group this size, that there are people here this morning that are being led astray. The spirit of this world has convinced them that life apart from God is better than life in relationship with him. That there's something better outside of his design. That they can make their own decision, be their own person, but in fact, they're slaves to selfish desires. And Father, I pray that if there are those this morning whose heart is inclined to that direction, that they will recognize with clarity this morning that they are not their own person, that they are being led astray. Instead, I pray that they hear the loving voice of their Savior, calling them out of darkness into your marvelous light. That they will understand the very reality of the presence of God indwelling the people of God. That you didn't just uh, work in our lives in a way that we just kind of take care of it on our own, but you actually entered in. <laughs> most importantly, through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, you demonstrated your love on the cross. And you shared that love through the work of your spirit, drawing all men to yourself. And may we trust you. And in trusting you, deny all others. Father, I pray that each day we realize that we are as dependent in that moment as the hour we first believed. And may we look to how your future is made real in our present. Not just individually, but collectively as a body of Christ, fulfilling your mission on the earth. And I think about these seniors who we will now recognize. And I pray, Father, that each and every one of them compelled or that they're compelled by, by your spirit at work in their life to join together with other brothers and sisters in Christ whom you've gifted uniquely to fulfill a purpose when combined to accomplish your work on earth, to share your good news, to declare the message of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. That's our prayer and our desire. We ask this in your name. Amen.